This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "Fear of Enlightenment," recorded June twenty-eighth, nineteen ninety-two, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So we'll call this topic "The Fear of Enlightenment." Uh, two questions were raised: one about what is enlightenment, and the other was about fear. And specifically, I think we're talking about spiritual fear here. And it's true, there is such a thing as this fear of enlightenment, and it's something that most people experience and have to deal with during the course of the spiritual path. So let's uh, break this down a little bit, and first let's talk about what is enlightenment. And of course, we are never going to be able to define this, because by its very nature, enlightenment is beyond words. However, we can try to give a few little analogies and metaphors so that we can understand why there should be such a thing as the fear of enlightenment. First of all, enlightenment is not a uh, particular state of consciousness. It's not something that if you work real hard at meditation and you can quiet the mind and you reach this state of stillness, that then you can hold on to this state and you walk around sort of uh, having achieved this very high state of consciousness, and you're always in this state of consciousness. Why not? First of all, if we think of enlightenment that way, we're already making the fundamental error that prevents our realizing our own enlightenment to begin with. We're thinking of ourselves, I, in a certain state of consciousness. Enlightenment is the realization of what we might call the state of all states of consciousness, or just simply consciousness itself. You might think of it this way. Water is water. Water is water if you find it in solid form, as ice, if you find it in uh, liquid form or liquid state, or if you find it in a gaseous state. Ice, liquid, and gas are all states of water. In no one state is water more water than in another. Water is just as much water in a solid state as it is in a liquid state as it is in a gaseous state. And you can think of all the states of consciousness like that. Some states are very rarefied states. We call them higher states of consciousness. They're like the gaseous states. There's less form in them. And at the opposite end of the spectrum are the lowest states of consciousness, which have this very solid appearance. They're like the ice state. But truly speaking, consciousness is consciousness no matter what state is there. And the, the reality of not only our lives, but of everything, is simply a state of consciousness. This gong is a state, or this gong is a form of consciousness. I'll make a slight distinction here. It's a, like a state of consciousness, it's a form of consciousness. Where we say ice is a state of water, and an ice cube is a form of water. This cat is a form of consciousness. The waking, normal waking state we think of is a state of consciousness. Dreaming is another state of consciousness. So, now, so consciousness yeah. is, how would you say that? That uh, what was the state of consciousness? A form. a form of consciousness. In what way? It's made of consciousness. Just the way an ice cube is a what, form what of do you water. Mean by consciousness in that? Wow, this is a this is a big question. What do we mean by consciousness? This is why ultimately we can only use analogies. We can't talk about it. What what? Uh, how would you describe consciousness? Is it a cohesion of? Particles of energy? A cohesion? Into awareness of some kind? No, I mean, you're thinking here. What, you're con are you conscious? Right now? No. 
You're not conscious right now? I'm not conscious. You're unconscious? I'm conscious of my unconscious parts of myself. Uh, there's nothing fancy about this word consciousness, the I'm using. You're, you're conscious, right? Yes. Is anybody here not conscious right now? Is anybody unconscious right now? No, he's not. He's dreaming. He's conscious of little mice running around. That he's not chasing, that he's administering to. This is the Dharma cat. So everybody knows what I'm talking about. When I ask you, are you conscious? You all know what I'm talking about? It's conscious. What I understand is about awareness of participation in things, definitions of things. Awareness. Okay. That's a, that's a close word to consciousness. But now what is consciousness? For instance, let's try to describe it. How big is it? I mean, is it three feet by two feet or it's vast, you said? Immeasurable. I mean, I can't measure it anyway. Could, an, could anybody measure it? Changes. Hmm? Changes. It changes size? I mean, sometimes it's two feet by three feet and sometimes it's five feet by six feet? Or? Yeah. Well, how would you ever measure one particular right dimension? Right now, mine is about as big as this room. In the field out there? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, turn no, your head that's around. No, oh, that's not in there. You can't see any sky? <laughs> so close your eyes. Has consciousness vanished? No, it's small. How small? Mm-hmm. An inch? As small as my body. As small as your body? Mm-hmm. And what happens when you fall asleep and your body disappears? See, you're associating consciousness with a form. But think about this. If there was, a, if there's a limit to consciousness, then you can't imagine something on the other side. You said the wall, you said the yard, your consciousness extends to the yard. You can make it grow. What's on the other side of it? The yard. We're afraid to find out about what we don't know. Well, don't jump ahead here. Okay. <laughs> no, you're interesting. You're talking about what I'm paying attention to. right. You're talking about forms of consciousness. Forms uh, expand and contract. You're very right. That's very uh, astute observation. It's not fixed. But what about consciousness itself? Yeah, because all forms can disappear, or every form will disappear. So your consciousness cannot be any particular form. And this is very good about your realizing that the sky behind you is not in consciousness. This is a very, I think, very difficult for most people to realize. But if you now do turn your head, all those forms disappear from consciousness, don't they? So consciousness can't be those forms. Consciousness doesn't disappear, but those forms disappear. If we want to say, what color is consciousness? What color is consciousness? I mean, is it red, green? It's a kind of a... Maybe a violet. What about consciousness of imaginations? Is that applicable? Sure. Imaginations are just another kind of form. We call that a subtle form in consciousness rather than a gross form. In fact, we're going to get to this because all form, in a certain sense, is imaginary. What a mystic says is that you are this consciousness even though we can't define it. Does consciousness have a beginning, for instance, or does it have an end? Where does it begin? Do we ever pinpoint the beginning, or where does it end? This consciousness is, uh, is actually itself is without any particular attributes. It doesn't have a particular color. There is color in consciousness, just as their forms, and they change all the time. But consciousness itself isn't any particular color, any more than the water is a particular state. The state of the water changes from ice to liquid to gas, back to liquid, back to ice, but it always remains water. And it, it itself, water, does not have any state that's particular to water. But why should consciousness be any bigger than what it needs to be to hold what's in it? But it's only that big at that moment, in, in the way you're talking about it. That's not its size, you see what I mean? Any more than water's 
the water's true state is no more liquid than solid. If I asked you what's... At any moment it has a state. Sure. But what's its true state? What's its state? Why should there be one? That's right. There is no state. There is no specific state. That's what I'm trying to get at. Exactly that. Just like water. What's water's, what's water's true state? Flows? No, ice doesn't flow. It only flows when it starts to melt, and then it's becoming water. But wasn't it flowing before it became ice? Yes, it was flowing before it became ice. And before it was flowing, it was a gas. And before it was a gas, it was ice. I mean, you see, you arbitrarily pick some point and call that the beginning. Well, this is what we do. It's imaginary. Vibrating atoms? Hmm? Vibrating atoms? Atoms the most precisely are uh, forms of consciousness. They don't exist without consciousness. You said the true state of water. Okay, what I'm using as analogy, and if you but if you want to go look closer, what's the true state of an atom? Depends on whether it's in consciousness. And why should the idea of atoms be truer than the feel of water in your head? It's another good question. Well, atoms are are uh, imaginary, literally, in the sense that we imagine them. But let's not get too detailed here philosophically. I'm trying to, I'm trying to draw analogies. You'll never be able to define consciousness. And yet, no one here doubts that they're conscious. It's a very interesting thing. Now, what a mystic says is that your true, always, your true state is consciousness. Which has no particular state. So you can't ever do anything to become conscious. You are consciousness. This is why enlightenment does not come by a series of meditative practices that get you to higher and higher states. Uh, enlightenment is not created by anything. It doesn't have any causal uh, conditions because it's always here. I cannot... Uh, cause this cat to appear because the cat is here. There are no set of instructions I can give you uh, to gain enlightenment any more than I can uh, get any of you uh, to sit down because you're all sitting down now. The instruction to sit down is the one instruction none of you can carry out at this moment. Can anybody sit down? Yeah, if you stand up first, yes. <laughs> Snuck in the room from behind. You weren't in my conscious until you looked and you were sitting down. So it's like enlightenment doesn't take you out of anything. I mean, there's no... Where you were talking. Yeah, I can agree. I mean, I agree with that. No, you don't have to agree with it. This is the whole point about mysticism. You can find out for yourself whether it's true. The The description here is just a map. It's just a guide. It's just a, if I gave you a map and said, here's X. Under X is a uh, buried treasure. You don't have to agree with me or not. The point is, if you're interested, to go out and dig under X and see if there's buried treasure. You might not believe me and say, I'm not even going to bother with this map. But it's silly for us to sit around with, and having uh, trying to decide philosophically if there's map under this uh, if there's treasure under this X because the whole point is not to decide even if you agreed with me and says I agree with you this treasure under the X big deal <laughs> the point is to go get the treasure you know so uh, truly speaking you cannot become enlightened because you are enlightened so uh, this is your this is the reality you are not conscious you are consciousness. And being consciousness, you can't be born. You can't die. You don't have any specific boundary. You're not different from anything else. It's all a form of you, if you like. Now, this is what mystics say. It sounds absurd. It contradicts our normal experience of things. It's radical. 
And so you say, well, if this is the reality, if this is the true case of uh, things, why don't I just know it? And that's what a mystic says, why don't you know it? In some way, you are not recognizing what is the truth, the reality. Which means, in a certain sense, you're deluded. There's a very good analogy in uh, Hinduism and Buddhism uh, to describe this situation. If you walk along a path in twilight, in the country, in the desert, and you see uh, a rope, an old discarded rope, sort of coiled there by the side of the path, in that twilight, it's very easy to mistake that for a snake. You look and you see a snake. That's what you actually see. Notice this. In the moment, you see this snake. And you go running back to my house and you say, I can't go home tonight. There's a snake in the path. And I say, it's, it's not a snake on the path. There's an p- old piece of rope. And you say, no, I saw it. It's a snake. And I say, yeah, I used to think that too. Uh, that happened to me. But I guarantee you, you go look more closely and you'll see it's a rope. You go back down the path and you look and sure enough, it's a rope. Now, the snake, from reality's point of view, uh, no snake turned into a rope or no rope turned into a snake. You were just deluded about what you saw. You were mistaken about what you saw. You perceived the reality incorrectly. You might say you superimposed a projection of your own mind of a snake onto that rope, and so that's what you saw. So from a mystic's point of view, enlightenment is simply realizing that what you thought was a snake is not a snake, it's a rope. And if we then extend this analogy and apply it to our own lives, we say, what we thought we were, we aren't. And the minute we see that we aren't that, then we see what we are. Now, everyone has a slightly different uh, delusion about who they are. Every individual has a slightly different delusion. And then when we look from individuals, we look at individuals from culture to culture, we see quite uh, a variety of perceptions of who people are. So if you were uh, grew up in a traditional Thai culture, for instance, you would think of yourself as having two souls, which is a quite foreign idea to Westerners, even if you grew up in a traditional Christian I had a traditional Christian background where you think maybe yourself is some sort of soul. Other cultures, they have many souls. Some cultures, the essence of a person is is a soul that can take on different shapes. In many American Indian cultures, for instance, uh, it's perfectly reasonable uh, that people change into uh, foxes and wolves and stuff and change back. In our culture, this is absurd. I mean, so different cultures have different ideas. But every known culture, every culture that we know of, people grow up with the idea that they that there's some sort of boundary that distinguishes them from the world. There's I and there's other. Self and world, subject and object wherever you draw that boundary. It may be a composite of things you think you are. For instance, in most cultures, people do think, uh, at least in part, they are bodies. They identify themselves, who they are, their true identity, with a limited thing, a body. And then common ones, particularly in our culture, is to identify with emotions, which are associated with the body, and to thoughts, and perhaps to some willing or volitional center, some uh, center in there that wills things. That's a very, very strong and very subtle one. 
whatever it is in your own particular case. And you may also think that you're a soul trapped in this body, or two souls, or whatever, or a psyche, or you may also have an idea that you are an unconscious, that you have an unconscious, sort of a Freudian idea. You can have all sorts of ideas. It doesn't matter what your ideas are. But as long as you think that there is some boundary, some limit here, beyond which, everything beyond that boundary, you are not, then, from a mystic's point of view, you're deluded. You could say it this way. Consciousness has identified itself with one of its own forms. And it's a delusion. Consciousness isn't limited to any particular form. And once you're identified with body, thoughts, emotions, and stuff like that, problems arise. Once you're identified with uh, some exclusive set of forms in this world of form, you're cut off, A, from the world of form. Being cut off from the world of form, uh, you have something to gain and something to lose. You desire things outside yourself. And you go to try to grab onto them and acquire them and so forth. And of course, they're all impermanent because consciousness is always at play, always creative. And so you don't realize that you're doing all this and you feel like these things are being taken away from you and whatnot. And so you suffer. Once you're identified with the inside of a particular boundary, you're subject to loneliness. And then so you suffer from that. All forms of suffering at root come down to this delusion that there's a you in the midst of all this and the very, a you that could suffer. That could be born and more particularly that could die. And this is perhaps one of the fundamental causes of our suffering. Once we think we are a particular form in consciousness or of consciousness, as you so well put it, then we realize all forms are ephemeral. No form stays there forever. And we look around and we see that all these other forms around us go. And we uh, then begin to realize, well, gee, this form also is ephemeral. This form also is going to go. And sure enough, we start to see it happening. We go look in the mirror and we start to see the wrinkles and the gray hairs and the little aches and the pains here and there and there. And we say, uh-oh, uh-oh. And we have a terror of this because we think, being this form, that when the form goes, we're gone. How do we know that consciousness isn't ephemeral or this If it was ephemeral, it would have an end. But we don't even know what it is. It has a beginning when? It used to be when I was born. Okay. What time are we in now? We have to take a little digression here and talk about time to discuss this. Are we in the present now? What time? Are we in the past or the future or the present? What, what time are we in now? Now. Now, okay. Have you ever not been in the now? Have you ever known any time that was not now? Okay. So what does it mean to say consciousness has an end? There is no uh, future. There's no past. No one's ever experienced a, a future or a past. Well, yeah, there was a time when I wasn't in the now. When? Before I was born. Before you were born, you weren't in the now? How do you know? I can't experience that. You can't experience it. I guess I can't know it or not know it. Okay, but my question is, can you experience any past? Have you ever experienced anything that wasn't in the now? Do you see what I mean? Okay, can you experience yesterday? I can remember yesterday. Ah, you can remember it. Well, that's a memory is arising now, though, isn't it? Everything's happening is always happening now. We, uh, where's the line between the now, the future, and the past? 
Can anybody ever find any line that separates the future from the, from the now or the past from the now? It's imaginary. This is what mystics always say. This world that we live in is a creation of the imagination. It's creation of consciousness, and then we create it, and we imagine it, and then we're trapped in it. But truly, there is no time, you see. There's no beginning or end, because there's no, in order to be a beginning and end, there has to be time. But there's change, and that is time. There's change. Certainly there's change. Change is time. No, so things are constantly changing. But does consciousness ever change? Well, does it? I mean, in order to be change, it has to be something. It isn't anything. It goes away when I'm asleep. Huh? It goes away when I'm asleep. It goes away? That's very interesting to watch tonight when you go to sleep. Does consciousness go away? Or do just forms vanish from consciousness? Like when you close your eyes, the forms are gone. Visual forms are gone when you close your eyes. Oh, you can see some, yes, this visual field. Close your eyes and this visual field is gone. When you go to sleep, it's the same thing happens for all your sensory forms. In fact, this whole world vanishes. Yeah, but there is a moment, there is a, a space in there when, where there is nothing. That's a very interesting space. There's just consciousness itself in that space. Then it has no form. This is why we talked about earlier about uh, yogis doing dream yoga. This is precisely the point of doing dream yoga. It's to be lucid when you fall asleep. You think it's vanished because you're identified with particular thoughts, forms, body, emotions, and so forth. When they vanish from consciousness... Then when you wake up, you don't say when they're vanished from consciousness, oh, consciousness has vanished. Because if you could say consciousness has vanished, then consciousness wouldn't have vanished. It's only later when you wake up, you remember, and you don't remember anything there. There was no form to remember. So you say, oh, what happened, must have happened, was consciousness vanished. But this is all a construction on the past. It's all trying to uh, account for a gap in memory. But there's nothing magical about memory. I mean, I'll bet you, uh, I mean, just from a, again, from a relative point of view, I'll bet you most of you do not remember what you were doing on March 31st, 1989. You probably have not one memory from that, but you wouldn't say there was no consciousness then, just because you don't have any memory of it. Well, how is it different from, she keeps talking about personal consciousness, and you start out with saying that the bowl, I mean... So there's consciousness, that, like the Zen people say, that pervades the rocks. And I mean, is that what you were referring to, like a cosmic? Uh, no, I'm. I'm. This is what I want to concentrate on. Well, but you're making distinction by personal consciousness and some other kind of consciousness. How could you distinguish between personal consciousness, consciousness, and another kind of consciousness? I don't know. That's what we've been brought up to think. Exactly. In fact, we think I have consciousness as though consciousness were some attribute of a something called I. What a mystic says, this is the delusion. You don't have consciousness. Consciousness has you, insofar as if you think you're a particular form arising in consciousness. So this is exactly what we want to investigate on a spiritual path. I'm just giving you now the mystic's point of view. I'm not asking you to believe it. Or, or not. In fact, I would uh, be surprised if you weren't somewhat skeptical. It's completely different than the way you're brought up. This is what we want to try to investigate. So what a mystic says is that there, you have a delusion about your actual state of affairs, and the basic delusion is that you are some sort of self, in the, in the in meaning in a, in a bounded, limited sense. That you are some sort of I, body, thoughts, mind, motions, whatever it is, walking around in a world of other uh, objects, that you're trapped in this world. And this is a delusion that can be realized to be a delusion, just like you can realize that the snake is not a snake, it's a rope. 
Or another common uh, metaphor in mystical traditions is being asleep. You fall asleep, and let's say in your dream, let's say you dream you are a fox. And there are these hunters chasing you. And the dogs are, and they're running through the meadows, and you're trying to run away. And you're terrified. Now notice, in the dream, you don't know you're dreaming. This is reality to you. In the dream, you're not identified with this body. You're identified with a fox body. Right? In the dream, you're uh, afraid. Because you believe that the fox body you believe you are uh, could... Uh, that this is your essence and that when these dogs get a hold of it and rip it apart, that's going to be the end of you. Right? And in the dream, you think that the problem is, how am I going to get away from these dogs or get rid of these dogs or how am I going to find some safety or security where I can be permanently safe? Now, the real solution to all this is not to find some place of permanent safety and security in the dream. You're never going to find a place of permanent safety in the dream. It's always changing. The forms are always changing. The solution is to wake up and say, oh, I'm not really a fox. And I'm not being chased by any real dogs. And then to realize who created all this this world of foxes and dogs and meadows and whatnot. A whole entire world, where did it come from? Well, in a relative sense, we say, oh, I created it. My mind created it. It was a projection. It doesn't exist anywhere other than in my mind. Well, in the same way, this world of forms and so forth doesn't exist anywhere but in consciousness. And you are that consciousness that creates it. The only, uh, the only problem here is to feel that you're somehow trapped in it. So the problem is that we have this delusion that we are a someone in this kind of dream world and that uh, this is a world of impermanent forms, and that we are a someone which is a, some sort of form, and that eventually this form is going to disintegrate, die, vanish. And that when it does, we are. So, how can you realize that you're not this? Do you still have definition to yourself once you do realize this? Is there still a defined you once you have had this realization? Can you feel yourself separate? No, there's no self. <laughs> Who's going to feel themselves separate? Who wants to? <laughs> Who wants to what? I don't want to. Yeah. It's like that's the reason for even looking at enlightenment is to end this. But the trick is it won't end for you. You'll end. You see what I mean? This is, this is the problem. We begin on a path of enlightenment like that little fox wanting to find some place of safety and security. And we think that enlightenment is some sort of state where I am going to be safe and secure. And, but enlightenment is the state when you realize you're not I. That there is no I. There is no you. There is no, uh, there are forms, but you aren't any of those forms. There's a world full of colors and, and uh, skies and foxes and, and dogs and so forth, but you're not any of those things particularly. And that all those things are in constant play and motion, and all those forms are constantly changing, coming and going, but you're not changing, coming and going. Because there is no you. It's not because you've achieved some sort of permanent uh, invulnerability to change. Because there's no one to come and go. There never was anyone to come and go. There was never any snake on the path. Do you see what I mean? So it's not a question of, you know, making the snake secure. 
there's no snake there. It's seeing that there's no snake there. Now, the, this talk is about the fear of enlightenment. This all is interesting intellectually and, and uh, philosophically, perhaps, or perhaps it isn't to you. To some people it has been in, in history. Uh, and then you decide, well, uh, this is what the mystics say. And gee, if this was true, this would really be radical. First of all, this is, means that the way I'm experiencing things now is really quite wrong. And then that the, there actually is an end to death, to suffering. That these things are not uh, part of the human condition, as humanists like to say, that we just have to accept and go along with. That what all the great spiritual traditions, from one way or another, have tried to communicate, maybe philosophically, through myths or whatever, that suffering, death, are the wages of sin. Sin is error. It's a delusion. That they're uh, self-created. That if we saw things truly, there would be no suffering and death. So if that possibility intrigues you, then you start reading more of the mystical teachings, and you want to see for yourself, is this true? It doesn't do any good just to take the mystics' word for it, because you'll still have your delusion. So you start doing spiritual practices. Now, I said in the beginning of this, no spiritual practice can cause you to become enlightened. What do spiritual practices do? They start to remove, little by little, the obstacles to an enlightenment that's already there. And that is, in a, in a very brief uh, way of putting it, they start to remove that sense of identification with particular forms in consciousness. They start to remove the identification with the body, and you do that by observing the body. You observe, you thought the body was some solid thing here in space and time, and you watch at night when you go to sleep. You watch how the body drops out of consciousness. You watch in the morning how the body comes back to consciousness. You watch during the course of the day how different parts of your body come and go. You start really examining a body, you find there is no body there. What you think is the body is made up of all sorts of different phenomena, sensations coming and going all the time, visual things. You know, you look, there's a knee, you close your eyes, the knee is gone. Sounds, you hear your stomach grumbling, but then they cease. There's all this stuff uh, forming this sort of pattern, keeps coming and going, and it forms a kind of pattern. But there's no solid thing there that you can get a hold of and call a body. So you, in the process of this self-observation, paying attention, mindfulness, you begin to realize, gee, all this stuff happens in consciousness, comes and goes, but I'm not really that. You start to disidentify with that. Same thing is true of your thoughts, especially if you meditate. Boy, your thoughts come and go, and how do they churn away? And well, they have, you start to see they have quite little to do with you, actually. You start to disidentify with them. They tell you all sorts of things, but you don't necessarily have to listen to them or not. The same with your emotions. Anger arises, anger passes, joy arises, joy passes. And the more you watch them, the more you develop this observation, you start to disidentify with them. So you start to sort of loosen up this, the solidity of this delusion. It starts to, for you, crumble. You start to see for yourself. You start to have little insights, illuminations. You start to experience yourself differently, experience the world differently. When this very solid state uh, that you're normally in starts to melt, to go back to that analogy, you start to have a much more fluid sense of existence, not stuck in some body. That fluidity we call love. You start to uh, experience, instead of these solid boundaries, which you have to protect and defend and so forth, you start to experience this fluidity of boundaries, and then this sort of flow, and that is love, compassion. And you pursue it because it feels good. Even if you still don't believe in enlightenment and all this business about uh, no death and, and the suffering, your life has become enriched. And usually most people, they... They, they hear the practice, the teaching, they go do it for themselves. They say, oh my gosh, at least this part is true. 
Well, let me do a little more. Oh, this is true. You start maybe with faith. I mean, you have to have enough faith in the practice to try it, just the way you have to have enough faith in a, a physics teacher to go learn physics. If you didn't have any faith in a physics teacher, you wouldn't go sit in a classroom. But slowly, your faith is replaced by your own knowledge, your own insights, your own experience. You don't need faith. But along the way, this uh, kind of center that's been created by this form that you've identified with, that has thought and emotion and swirling around in it, that we might call here ego, although there's no true ego there, that starts to realize at some point, wait a minute, this whole path is about my dying. It doesn't actually die any more than uh, if you are a uh, psychotic and uh, you believe that there's a parrot sitting on your shoulder, uh, that your cure of your psychosis to realize there's no parrot on your shoulder. You don't say that the parrot died. You might say the delusion died, and so therefore the person's cured, but there was no real parrot there. The snake on the path didn't die because there was no real snake there, but from the point of view of... Uh, the, the person traveling the path, it seems as though this sense of a limited self is going to have to die. And this is why in many mystical traditions it's talked about as mystical death. The transformation only happens with death of delusion. And when that starts to become clear, not just as an idea, but through your own experience, then what arises is the fear of enlightenment. You might put it this way, that there's a part of yourself we call the ego in this culture that does not want to pursue this path. The ego started off believing that, oh, this path is going to make me invulnerable to suffering and death. But along the way, it starts to realize, wait a minute, it's not going to make me invulnerable. It's going to be the end of me as the center of the world, as the self that's the axis of all this activity. And so it starts to experience fear. There's a uh, famous story about Tsongkhapa, who was a great Tibetan teacher, yogi. And he was lecturing to a thousand monks or something about the doctrine of no-self. The Buddhists say there is no-self. And the self is shunyata, it's empty of any reality. And there are uh, complex philosophical arguments that Tibetans have for this. And many, many monks learn this, and they learn the arguments, and they learn the teachings, and so forth. And, and they can recite it back, and they can they have these wonderful debates, and they can debate these questions. And this particular day, Tsongpaka, Tsongkhapa was looking out over these monks as he was talking about the emptiness of self. And he saw one monk go like that sort of grab onto a seat and to himself. And he said, ah, he's understood. Because he had fear. He understood at a level, not just intellectual level, but there's the sense of losing self, and it created fear. And so Tsongkhapa said, oh, this is a sign that the practice is really working. These teachings are getting through to this one monk. These other thousand monks, or 999 monks, they ain't getting it yet. They're getting it intellectually, but they're not really getting it. So fear is actually a sign that the practice is working. Now in Western traditions, they talk about the fear of God. Cultivating the fear of God. The fear of God is considered a good thing, you know, in Christianity and in Islam and in Judaism. It's not considered a bad thing. It's not the fear of God as evangel evangelical preachers talk about it, that you're afraid of God because God's the big judge in the sky who's going to send you to hell. It's that sense of awe and fear in the presence of this vastness that dwarfs you, self, ego. You pray for the fear of God because that's a sign that you're getting close to God. And God is nothing but consciousness, this consciousness that you are. So fear on a, on a spiritual path, on a mystical path, 
is a sign the teaching is working. It's an obstacle in the sense that if we let fear overcome us. And you can say at one point on a spiritual path, you are divided. There's part of you that does not want to be enlightened. And this part of you that does want to be enlightened. I'm speaking very rel- in very relative terms here. And this is why on a spiritual path, uh, often it becomes like a battleground, as Carlos Castaneda described it, and many, many mystics have described Can you Can you say something about like, awakening to fear? Is there... Well, as you awaken, you could put it that way. It's as though you were usually when you're dreaming. I'm talking about just normal dreaming, and you wake up. Usually, wake up pretty quickly. But supposing you and you usually, as you're waking up, start to remember, oh, I'm waking up, and this was just a dream. And if it's a nightmare, you're very glad to be waking up. But supposing you hadn't been awake in a long, long time, and you thought, and you'd been dreaming for an awful long time. And you thought this was all reality. Then no matter how terrible this reality was, if this world started to get transparent for you, you don't know you're waking up. But it, so what if we know deep, deep down that this is a dream, a delusion. And so as a spiritual path uh, takes effect, there's not only fear, but there's this longing, devotion, Reverence, all these terms express it, that draw us deeper, that are full of delight and bliss. So this again is this expresses this sort of battle uh, that goes on. Were you? Well, yeah, you know, I was thinking about this fear thing some weeks ago, and a, a bird just swooped by my head, and I thought a bird would not be afraid of being in the presence of God. A, a bird? A bird, yeah. A bird wouldn't be. So uh, it has, it's something not only human. Not only would a bird not be afraid of being in the presence of God, birds are never not in the presence of God. And not only, uh, as the Quran says, the birds, just by spreading their wings, are praising God. Mm. Just to, uh, just spreading their wings is a praise of God. And that's a praise of God, too. And it's a test for your attachments. <laughs> Sent by God to test you. But you see, it's only from our point of view that there's a little birdie up there, a little sort of ego stuck in a bird's head that would be afraid of God. That's our projection. No, of course not. Nothing's, nothing's truly afraid of God. Everything is God. It doesn't even make sense so, to I mean, talk about. If we were truly ourselves, like the bird is truly itself, then we wouldn't be afraid to be in the presence of God. We are never not in the presence of God. It's our delusion, you see, that we are. Truly speaking. And, but you're right. If we really knew who we were, we, not only would we not be afraid, it'd be like being afraid, it'd be to be afraid to be in your own presence. So is the fear then just like a shaking up of the delusion? Exactly. It's a sign that it's shaking up. So, finally then, what do you do about it? And, you know, for different people experience this in different degrees. Some people have very little sense of fear on a spiritual path, actually. Some people have quite a bit. And, the, yeah. You don't think birds also forget that they're not birds? From our point of view, they do. This is why the Buddhists talk about all sentient beings, and that this is why we uh, even talk about, you know, teaching the Dharma to sentient beings and so forth. This is all from our point of view. Truly speaking, there are no birds. There's little ego things. <laughs> there's, a, there's a, no, this is a, there's, again, you see, it's not that, these seem to be contradictory teachings, but they're teachings at different levels. And it's, it's, uh, uh, it's one thing to say there are no sentient beings, and everybody nods, oh, okay, they go home, but nothing changes. Mm-hmm. But if you want to do a practice, we start making different sorts of distinctions in the world, and a great practice is to treat all uh, um, sentient beings uh, to love them as yourself, as Jesus said. Or to treat them with all with compassion. You see, this is part of the practice of tearing down the boundaries of self. So in Buddhism, for instance, a bodhisattva takes a vow to save all sentient beings. What the greatest vow in Mahayana Buddhism you take is ne- not even to enter nirvana, to be uh, liberated yourself until all sentient beings are liberated. 
But, uh, but now, in the Diamond Sutra, for instance, the Buddha is talking to one of his most advanced disciples. I think it's Shibuti, but I may be wrong. And he says, ah, he says, Shibuti now, he says, um, uh, it's true that a bodhisattva must take this vow not to enter nirvana until all sentient beings have been saved. This is the greatest sacrifice you can make, you see, to delay your own ultimate happiness until everything is happy. Then he says, but truly speaking, Shibuti, where if the truth was known, Shibuti, there are no sentient beings to be saved. So, you know, it depends on what perspective we're looking at. From the perspective of a practice, there certainly are sentient beings to be saved. From the perspective of your delusion, since you're deluded anyway, be deluded in a way that is going to lead out of your delusion. We cannot attain enlightenment, but we can do away with delusion. Does that make sense? And, but then that, does that mean that, um, that if there's no more I, then um, it's not like I am going to nirvana. It's like everything is... Everything, everything was in nirvana from the beginning, as the Buddhas also say. So they talk about entering nirvana and attaining nirvana and this and that, but if the truth were known, says the Lakavatara Sutra, all things were in nirvana from the beginning. You cannot create the sun, but if you have a big, a big brick wall blocking the sun, you can tear down the brick wall. You cannot create enlightenment, you cannot make it happen, but you can undo the obstacles that prevent you from seeing it. That's what a spiritual path is about. And then all the practices that go into a spiritual path. When fear arises, the most important thing to notice, to remember is, ah, this is a sign that this path is working. It's very important to, re to remember that. Not only this is a sign that this path is working, but this has happened to virtually all the spiritual seekers who have walked this path before me. For generations upon generations, for thousands of years. This is not something that you're abnormal or something abnormally is happening to you. Remember that little story, for instance, I told you about Tsongkhapa, which, just, you know, he lived in the 12th, uh, 12th century, I think, or 13th century. Then what do you do? The important thing is not to run away, not to take a macho attitude. If let's say if you're meditating, and let's say this happens to you, and it can happen to you, you get this sense of losing your center, of something dissolving. You might find yourself grabbing onto the floor. Relax. Go back. If you're doing uh, uh, any sort of visualization or whatever, it's a good idea to go back to some very concrete meditation, like breathing. We say in, in normal parlance, take a few deep breaths. Well, just take some deep breaths, put your hands on the floor, feel the solidity of the floor, just relax, don't get excited, and continue meditating. It's just a, a, a normal part of a spiritual path. If you let fear defeat you, it means you'll say, oh, I'll never meditate again. Uh, you know, that's just not for me. Then fear has defeated you, which is okay. That just means you're not really ready for a spiritual path at this time. You don't have to feel, uh, you know, guilty about it or anything. If you try to push too far, it can be dangerous. Too hard, it can be dangerous. Your own inner uh, uh, intuition knows, and you, you have to trust that. You have to have faith that there is beyond this fear, uh, there is the delight and illumination and ultimate realization of gnosis, of enlightenment. But you go at your pace, at your speed. You learn the lessons you have to learn in the order that you have to learn them. There's no good pushing ahead uh, faster than your path is unfolding. Yes. Uh, is my fear of high places where I go, the fear seems to be that I'm going to jump off and merge, and there's a draw to merge. Is that related to the fear of loss of self? Or? 
You know, I can't, I don't know how much there might be a physical component to that or whatever. But I do know it's very interesting if you have that, and I have a little vertigo too. In a dreaming or in a deep uh, imaginative process, like when you're going to sleep, you know, it's a very interesting thing to, to walk yourself up to a big cliff, knowing, you know, that this is imagination and jump off. And it's very interesting to experience that sense of letting go. And you do that for a while and get used to it. I don't know if that would actually cure someone who had a very strong phobia about high places or not. But it does give you a sense of um, the, the delight of uh, at the other end of that anxiety about, as you say, merging. Do you know what I mean? So if you do it in your imagination, uh, you can, because you will experience almost physically that sense. You get used to that, that sense of experiencing it. And you get beyond it, and you see there's delight, and so you no longer associate that sort of uh, that tension with something to be afraid of. You associate that tension with something delightful to come. Making a jump, <laughs> Well, you you know you go up to the you cliff. Yeah. I, I can only tell you, I've I've actually I years ago did this for a little bit. My experience was I I I could walk myself up to a cliff in my imagination, and then I could jump, and I could actually get off, but then I'd. Hop back to the cliff, or I'd find myself in. But then I'd go farther, you know? And then I would be like, um, they didn't have them those days, but a bungee cord, you know what I mean? Uh, but eventually you can, and actually, um, you can, even if you keep going, you can uh, have an out-of-body experience, uh, you know, through that sort of practice, which is, uh, you know, I wrote about it in my book. It's very delightful and very, and again, it's not, it's not that the out-of-body experience is itself anything magical. But it's a it's a symptom of this this dissolving of these this you know fixity about self and world, and so in that sense it's very important and it's also very delightful and that's always uh, good on a spiritual path you know to have uh, not only the stick but the carrot as well. So any other questions about fear and enlightenment? Because we've completely covered enlightenment and fear in this topic. I don't imagine I can't imagine why you have any other questions. Okay. Yeah. It's um, like it's work, though. I mean, a spiritual path. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like the fear for me. It's like too partly the fear of, you know, putting the effort also, or it's like it's like I have some big project you know ahead, and I don't I I don't want to do it Uh because it's like takes up too much time. I'd rather slip from one thing. Well, this is again in the beginning. It's. the most important thing is to, if you really want to go on a spiritual path, is to establish a discipline that you can handle. For instance, uh, you hear about people meditating two hours a day, let's say. And you think, oh, I can never meditate two hours a day, you know, to commit myself to that. Don't. Meditate for ten minutes a day. Commit yourself to something that you can actually do far better than trying to take on, you know, too much. You start with that. And maybe take one preset for yourself, not not to lie. And you just start working on that. And this is, you know, this is, then it's not a big thing. And you set the uh, discipline of being able to do this. You build up confidence in your ability to uh, follow through on something like that. You also see that even little practices like that will start to make a difference in your life, and that will become intriguing and fascinating to you, and that will encourage you to go on. So it's not like feeling I have to do this because it's a good thing to do, and I have to beat myself to make myself. You know, you want the the interest to lead the practice. Do you know what I mean? You do it because you get more and more interested. There will be times when you won't feel like meditating today, and you have to use a little willpower, you know, to keep up the practice. But it's far more important to establish a consistency of practice and to stay with it and just to expand it just when you want to and feel comfortable that you can. Do you know what I mean? This relates to the fear. There's no good pushing. And one of the most destructive things is when people get all hot about a spiritual path and they decide, I'm going to, you know, uh, meditate for two hours a day and I'm going to take all these precepts and they, you know, if after a month they're exhausted and they, you know, forget it and they bounce back and forth and, uh, 
much more uh, important to find uh, what you can do to really establish it in your life and then build slowly on that. Then you'll really uh, start seeing a transformation happen in your life. Otherwise, you're right. You'll be flipping back and forth, going on a spiritual path, taking up disciplines here, dropping them here, you know. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, that's interesting because you're exploring different kinds of spiritual paths. But at a certain point, to really go on a spiritual path, you do have to make that commitment. But it doesn't have to be a commitment to the whole enchilada at once, you know. Just whatever you feel comfortable with. Okay. Let's uh, call the formal part of the morning over. And you're welcome to stay and have tea. I think we have uh, cool tea as well as hot tea today, right? Mm -hmm. There's ice in the refrigerator. We'll get some ice out in a bucket. And uh, there's some cold herbal tea you can pour over the ice and hot tea and to use the library and whatever else.